The landscape architect Claude Cormier has created some of Canada's most thoughtful and whimsical public spaces over the past few years. His eponymous studio, which he founded in Montreal in 1995, is known for embracing a sense of fun in its designs of public spaces. Recent and forthcoming projects include a monumental water fountain in downtown Toronto, featuring 27 cast iron sculptures of water spouting dogs, and another public park which is under construction on the site of a disused highway off-ramp will have at its centre a large new lake shaped in the silhouette of a heart. From urban beaches to pocket parks to temporary structural installations, Cormier's work spans the gamut of private and public missions. And to foster the next generation of landscape architects, he recently founded the Claude Cormier Prize at the Daniels Faculty of Architecture at the University of Toronto. But like many aspects of the built environment, landscape design is often subject to the push and pull between design ambition and profit for both the client and the design studio itself. So how do landscape architects reconcile that conflict as our cities continue to grow and the need for good quality and equitable public space increases? And why is it that the notion of making a profit for design studios engaged in building public spaces is still regarded by some as something to muffle in public, akin perhaps to a guilty secret? You're listening to The Entrepreneurs with me, Thomas Lewis. This week, Claude Cormier guides us through the business of landscape design. He spoke to me from his studio in Montreal, and he begins now by explaining the principles that underpin his approach to building space in the public realm. The romantic idea of creating those spaces, it's phenomenal. Phenomenal. It's beautiful, right? A beautiful design space at the right place, with emotion, you sense it, right? I haven't traveled the world for the last two years. But in the past, for the last 25 years, I have seen places. I think by seeing them helps you. And I would say helps the younger one to get the feel out of it and being able to question themselves, why do I like this place? You start analyzing the place and break it down and break down your also your reading of it. Why do you like it? Why does it bring people? Just pay attention, right? Trying to, like you look at the film that uh, as a book, right? You get through, you're trying to dissect it. You want to understand it. You want to get in it. You want to get into the structure. I think you do, for the younger one, I think they have to learn also to pay attention. To pay attention to how the people move and start comparing one place with another. Why that one is working, why that one is not working. And then to move away and and leave the romantic aspect, because romance is one thing, but it doesn't stay long, right? The reality kicks in quickly. But how do you keep that romantic aspect throughout a career? I think I'm lucky enough that I have had that, right? How do you keep the flame? But I think also I would say you need to look at other things, for me to look at other things than landscape. Because landscape is one thing, but the notion of beauty is a big thing, right? People are interested by beauty, even if they don't admit it. We like beautiful things. Why a beautiful thing, a beautiful place, make us feel better? 
<laughs> and beauty is all around us. So I think paying attention, being open. And perhaps, Claude, we can go back to the beginning of your career. Where did the idea of, of what public space could do, what a successful public space could be in an urban setting, when did that, those notions, when did they first settle for you? I was very much interested in horticulture. I was very much interested into gardening. I was gardening with my mother. We had a big vegetable garden and it was, it was great. I love seeing things grow from beginning in the spring to the fall. It's something that was very interested. And by then I knew all my plants. I was, I was interested with flowers. I was interested by trees, shrubs. I knew the Latin, the English, the French. I was pretty amazing. I'm actually a farm boy from Quebec, outside Quebec in Princeville, which is in a beautiful Quebec area in the kind of a foot of the Appalache mountain in a dairy farm. We had a dairy farm. We had a sugar shack. I grew up in nature. Nature was a resource that we were making a living. So for me, it was not that interesting. And when my father passed away, I did what he asked me to do. He said, you should become an agronomist. So I did my study in agronomy at the University of Guelph. And then I had the idea that I would move into plant genetic. I wanted to invent a new rose. So it's a kind of a beautiful image of inventing a flower. But I, I discovered after my four years of science, science and I were not compatible. And I decided to move into landscape architecture. So when my father passed away, this is when I decided that I need also to break a little bit away from my past. This is how I basically discovered cities. So this is when I start discovering urban life, discovered museum, shopping, fashion, music, film, everything that I did not encounter when I was young. Loved it. And so your deep personal knowledge of, of rural life begins to mix with this burgeoning experience of life in a city. In your approach to, to design, how did those things begin to mesh for you? It informed my way of looking at the world and me looking at nature versus looking at culture was very informative of the way I was working. And then there was this young woman at, at that time, Martha Schwartz, who was doing landscape with the notion of cultural, of art, into which that was informing your landscape. I became fascinated by this woman. And this is where I, culture became the engine by which I was interested that would be informing my landscape that I was doing. Not nature, because nature for me was work. It was manure. It was mosquitoes. It was nothing interesting. At the age of 16, I got a chainsaw at my birthday. I was cutting trees. I was not planting trees. But this notion of making and taking art and referencing the idea into which we could make a landscape was such a big turn on for me. And then after that, when I finished my landscape degree at U of T, I worked for seven years. I worked in Toronto and in Montreal, and I decided that I wanted to know more. So I applied and designed in history at Harvard at the GSD. And I pursued that uh, a year of further study 
further reading and understanding about the world, about architecture, about urban design, about landscape. And it somehow brought this notion of agriculture, landscape architecture, and the idea of history and theory in the making of things. And this is where I start, and this is where I launched my studio. And that was in uh, 1995. My dream was actually to work in a big landscape firm. That was my dream. But I also had the notion that I wanted to come back home because I've been gone for 10 years studying right elsewhere. So coming back home was Montreal, not the countryside, but Montreal was not my home, but it became my home because it was Quebec. And there's no firm that I wanted to work with or for because then 25 years ago, that was not existing per se. So by inadvertence, I started my own. And slowly and slowly, and I, I don't consider myself as an entrepreneur, but in a way, I think I have it a bit because I succeeded with it and I was able to create a brand. And let's stay with that idea of, of creating a brand as a landscape design studio. What were the anchors of your offering in your mind as a brand in this space? We have a, a kind of a rule at the office that we, in new projects, we like to invent something new each time. Inventing something new is always entering a territory of unknown. But I think that's what we've done all our career in all projects. And there's, it's about risk. But I think I also believe in the kind of project that we take, we're trying to take different type of projects like ecology, not one kind, the diversity of project and also inform other projects of what we've learned in one can be reapplied, twisted, and pushed further in another one. We have had the chance to work in many cities, and it's interesting because each city has its own particularities, its different way of approval, different way of unfolding projects, Right, the specificity of a place and the people who are in it also is different. So we always somehow are walking on our toes, trying to make sure that it fits, right? And so it's, a, it's right, we cannot take anything for granted. And also the interest of legacy. I'm interested in legacy. I'm interested in the future. I'm interested for the generation. And now the future, I, right, I studied history. It's important. So it's all of these things interlinked, but also beauty. And you mentioned there a little earlier, Claude, that you don't think of yourself as, a, as an entrepreneur, perhaps in the more traditional sense of the world, but you are the founder and owner of your own company. And I wonder what some of the business principles are that you have built your firm on since you began back in 1995, would you say? I've learned quickly that management is an important aspect. You need to manage things. Things don't happen by themselves. And also, in order to do good stuff, you need a good client and you need a good team. You need good resource. And quickly, earlier on, Bruce Mao, I remember, taught me one note, very important, that I carried on still today, the notion of the three P. For him to select a project, he needed three of these P. The people, the project, and the profit. 
If you have only one P, no way. Don't touch it. Two P, yes, but with a certain limitation. And but the three P's, it's a winner. And it's true. And this is still how we work today here. The project needs to talk to us, right? It needs to have certain element that get us going. The people. We need to work with good people, with the right people, the team that we have assembled, the client, because it's essential. And profit is necessary because, <laughs> right? People are afraid of talking, artists talking about money and making money is not good. And in Quebec, making money is not, you're not good and all that stuff. But Bruce Mom just said, hey, that's what it is. And of course you need the 3P, people, project, and profit. Because if you want to stay alive, you want to do some research, you want to do some development, you need to have a bit of room, right? So this, it, those are excellent lesson learned early by Bruce, Bruce Mao. And I wanted to dig into some of your projects in a bit more detail, Claude. Here in downtown Toronto, for example, one of your most celebrated commissions is a relatively recent one, the redevelopment of Berksy Park, which is just next to Toronto's Flatiron Building. That park opened in 2017, and the, the centrepiece of this landscaped space for people who haven't been to the space themselves is a huge ornamental fountain, the stars of which, I don't think I'm wrong in saying, are these sculptures of dogs with spouts of water shooting out of their mouths into the basin of the fountain. It's a pretty joyous experience to be around that fountain in the summer when the water has been turned on after the winter season. And every time I've been there, particularly during the summer, it's been absolutely packed with a huge variety of of people and it's in a corner of the neighborhood that feels that it has a focal point again to me at least i wonder if you could walk us through what designing and constructing that project was like claude birdsey project is an interesting project and this is once again the reason why we did it so well there it's because we work with the community the community there was an amazing element that helped us to push the design because when we presented the idea of the duck fountain, we had big pushback from the city because they thought this thing made no sense and it was a kind of a nothing of a landscape architect would do. And dogs and art were not related. And when we had public consultation, we were very honest and frank and we presented it to them. They loved it, loved it. And having them behind us helped us tremendously to get the city rolling with us. But if we didn't have the city, the citizen and the community, I don't think we would have been able to do it. We had an amazing city councillor who was very sensitive to what her community wanted. But we also pushed them and they pushed us. And it was a pretty amazing chemistry between the community and us. And they have a sense of humor that was pretty big. And so what I've learned with it, it's the community nowadays. It's part of how we design. And each project actually nowadays needs to get the consultation in the public and their input. But it's how do you do it, right? How do you work with the public? How do you come with an idea? How do you inform them? How do you listen? It's all this kind of thing that I've learned over the year 
that it's very important. The tourists, the worker, the local people, and people coming to see it. It's a pretty amazing show to watch and the interaction of people, the community, the local people, their dogs, their cats, and the tourists and the worker. It's a pretty amazing urban theater in that sense, right? It goes very well with William White, this sociologist in New York in the 70s, who was an urbanist uh, sociologist talking about how do we design public space? And they're pretty simple, right? And having an element of triangulation of something that it's odd enough to trigger people's imagination. And I think the fountain is the dog fountain with the gold bone on top with the water jet does that very well. There's a newcomer in the city soon is a kind of, in a similar kind of thinking, it's Love Park, which is currently under construction on the waterfront, on the Queens Key Boulevard and York Street, where the, the ramp of the Jarvis uh, Gardner Expressway was taken down, right? It's a small park, two acres, and we've created this water basin about 55 meters dimension. It's two Olympic swimming pool next to each other, and it's the shape of a heart. And then there's a, a, a seating edge which would be done with red tile mosaic, bright red, bright, beautiful, cherry, deep red, that people would be able to sit among tree mounds and large canopy trees, some shade and some sun, and people are gonna just mingle. So it's due for an opening in the early fall, 2022. So we hope it's gonna have a bit of that urban chemistry that brings this kind of a universal quality and feeling of, of love, right, on the public space. And just to illustrate the, the setting a little for our listeners who aren't in Toronto, the shape of the lake, this outline of a heart, you'll be able to see that most clearly from above. The site is ringed by tall towers that will have this pretty amazing top-down view of this new public space, this heart-shaped lake at ground level yes there's apartment building all around about 50 60 75 story tall looking down there's some residential there's some offices and this is on the new redesigned queensky boulevard by west state and so right on the edge of the lake ontario so i think it's going to become a nice spot to hang out it's quite interesting to relearn again how to work, how to listen, how to in take into account other sensibility. So it's a bit of a, uh, it's a funny time of how we do things, right? We always, we can't not take anything for granted. Never, never, never. You discussed earlier the, the three Ps as being an anchor to the way your studio conducts its business. I wondered whether fulfilling those three Ps depends on the type of client you work with, whether a public body like a city, say, or a private one like the developer of a new residential development. Are there differences? Are there more challenges in fulfilling those three Ps depending on who the client is? We have different type of clients. The one at Love Park is the Toronto Waterfront. It's a corporation of the federal, provincial and municipal. And they're in joint venture 
because the park is designed by waterfront, but it will be maintained by the city of Toronto. So we have a client with two heads, right? And with the public consultation and the BIE, the business improvement area, also overlooking the, the, the entire process. So those are kind of a public client, but we also have private clients, developers, right? Or, or public institution, museum, universities, right? Which is different type. And it's not the same thing, but once again, you need a good client, right? You need a client that is organized, a client that has a trust in what you do. And the one that we like, they're the one that are able to take some risk with us because that's where the success resides. We don't do cut and paste. We're trying to promote and push yourself as well. And we're very fortunate we have amazing clients. If we don't have them, we quit. <laughs> because it doesn't go anywhere. Bad clients, you won't do anything. I've learned that quickly. And how acute is that push and pull between you and the client as a, as a project unfolds? Oh my God, absolutely, right? The push and pull is, I think, that what makes the project happen. We're not artists. We're architects. We're landscape architects. We're problem solver, right? We solve problems creatively. That's a distinction. Engineers as well, but not in the same way. But we solve problem with and bringing the reference of art, bringing the notion of beauty, bringing the notion of sustainability, meaning ecology, climate change, the kind of things that needs to make sense to a place. For example, at Berksy Park, the trees are growing and they're in the paving, right? It doesn't look like it, but there's a whole technicality aspect of this, that which is very, very important. And my team, here at my office, have developed an amazing knowledge of how to make these trees grow in an urban condition. They have 30 cubic meter on soil, and then we have pavement above. So, right, it's pretty amazing. And then collecting rainwater, we don't see it, but all these elements of sensibility and sustainability has helped us to make better landscape inner cities for sure so this is a kind of a the kind of approval process also are getting more difficult the cities and the clients want more it's always growing it's also learning and this notion of sensibility is key i think the notion of management is very important managing ideas managing expectation and also in those spaces that are more important in the city, they seems to get smaller because the city is getting denser and higher, more people, more hardscape. So how do we bring sensibility in there and bring beauty and bring green trees and spaces and to live all together? Big buildings, small apartment, lots of people. So the use and the need of public space is even more important. And we saw it at the early COVID that we were all stuck in our houses. The pressure on the public space was tremendous. So as landscape architect, I think what we do is very, very important. Very important. Does being a smaller design studio 
Is that helpful in your mind in achieving that? Does that allow you to be more nimble as a project gets underway, as conditions change in a given project, for example? Is it useful being a little bit smaller as a company as you adapt to those changes? Excellent point. I think that's the reason why we're a small office, because we're fighters. Because every day there's something that could disappear on the project. Every day on all of them, right? We have a hands-on from beginning to an end, and we don't quit. <laughs> right? We fight everything. Everything. It's amazing. And that's, that's why there's only 16, 17 of us. Because the day goes on, and the only thing we've done is fight. I remember when I was young, I was working in, in Martha Schwartz's office for a year. And Pete Walker was there, and he was on the phone all day long. And he was an angry man. And I remember thinking, my God, they do amazing work. Why is he so angry? Boy, do I understand now. <laughs> right? That's what we do. We push back and say, no, all of our best projects, they could have been killed. All of them. In the beginning or in the making. And the reason why they're there is because we fought, fought, and fought, and fought. The pink umbrellas. You think it was easy to do? Pink umbrellas on the front, on the lakefront in Lake Ontario? No way. Lipstick forest in the Palais des Congrès in Montreal, like bright pink trees. Do you think it was easy? No. Right? Our book that we just finished, Serious Fun. Also, it's every aspect is it's, it's a battle. Right? The romantic looks romantic at the surface. But when you start scratching, <laughs> boy, you find the, 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 the kind of a hard aspect of it. And just finally, Claude, it'd be great to, to get a bird's eye view from you of just how crowded a sector the landscape design sector is. How competitive is it for a landscape design studio to win the kinds of commissions that will put the studio's name on the map that will then lead to other commissions from different types of clients. Do your elbows need to be pretty sharp to be successful in this industry, Claude? <laughs> I think there is room for it, for it, right? There's room for it. You think there's no room, but there's, there's always room. But yes, it's hard playing. You need to stand up. You need to, to learn, to talk about your idea. You need to learn how to defend them but in a kind of a constructive, positive, and sometimes humoristic way. And it gets you a long, long way. For sure, it works. It works. It's a good trick bringing humor in the equation. For sure. For sure. That would be my advice. I guess there's one thing that I, I, I like about Quebec. It's a sense of humor, right? We're kind of a, a different society of the rest of Canada that we have this ability to laugh about ourselves and being able to pass messages with humor. And I think that has also helped in our design at the office, using humor, using optimism in what we create. And I think the rest of Canada does not have it, but is very hungry for it. And that's why we love Toronto and Toronto loves us. People want it. 
and there's a way of learning of how to, to do it. And I think Quebec, for me, is a great place to be because we're surrounded by it constantly. My thanks to Claude Cormier for joining us on this week's edition of The Entrepreneurs. You can find out more information on past and forthcoming projects by Claude's studio by visiting claudecormier.com. And Claude's new book, which chronicles his studio's work since it opened in 1995, is called Serious Fun, and it's available now. Today's programme was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars at Midori House in London. My thanks to him, as always. You can listen again to today's programme or delve into our archive of inspiring business stories by heading to monocle.com forward slash radio or, of course, via your podcast platform of choice. You can also find more thought-provoking tales of entrepreneurship from around the world in the print counterpart to this programme, The Entrepreneur's Magazine, which is published twice a year, and the latest instalments of which are available from a good newsstand near you or, of course, via monocle.com forward slash shop. I'm Thomas Lewis here in Toronto. Do join us at the same time next week for a brand new episode of The Entrepreneurs here on Monocle 24. But for now, thank you very much for listening and we'll see you soon.